We were so thankful Jimmy Casas was able to join us in person for this leader chat. Jimmy and his work supporting leaders is extremely unique. His advice specific to culture is not just philosophical, it's pragmatic. He provides leaders with protocols and processes. This leader chat is informative, but also inspiring. You will love Jimmy Casas. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. Today is going to be fun. And the reason it's going to be fun is the guests that I'm chatting with, I've had the opportunity to engage with on a number of occasions. I've had the opportunity to delve into his content, and we're going to do the same together uh, here on your behalf. And what's what's really fun is that I get to talk to our guest face to face. So in a minute, you'll see our cameras move. And rather than having somebody on the screen, literally I can reach out and touch this guy. So when I talk about this guy, I'm talking about Jimmy Casas. Jimmy is, um, well, I'll, I'll give a brief bio and then of course I'll kind of, you know, poke him on his bio a little bit. But the brevity of it is that he served 22 years as a school leader. He's a best-selling author, speaker, leadership coach, and state national award-winning principal under Jimmy's leadership. Bedenford, I hope I said that correctly. He'll correct me in a second. High school was named one of the best high schools in the country three times by Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report. Jimmy was then, you know, the Iowa Principal of the Year and a variety of Principal of the Year here, here, and here. I'm not going to go through that list. Bottom line is um, he was recognized for this really, really impressive work that he did as a leader, but maybe even more importantly, what was happening at the school. He was invited to the White House at one particular time. I've never been to the White House. I'm still waiting a call or a return call. They don't they ignore my emails. So without further ado, I'm going to dive in. And Jimmy, it's, it's great to be here. Jeff, thank yeah. you so much. I'm super excited to be here right in your presence, right in... Georgia here doing this. Yeah, so, it's thank pretty slick because you're yeah. not, you, don't, you don't live in Georgia. No, nope, I don't live in Georgia, but I love Georgia. You're you're here working with a couple of districts, mm -hmm. and I was able to somehow snag some of your time <laughs> and beg you to be here on a fairly late Monday evening. Um, so I'm glad yeah, to have you. Me too. Thank you so much. I so I, I just touched on your bio. Mm -hmm. um, so number one, I, I miss some things. Maybe you could mm -hmm. help our audience get to know you a little bit better. I mean. Yeah. Maybe give us some of the trajectory or a little yeah. bit of your career sure. arc and, and maybe some of your why, some of your driving motivation, just so yeah. they know kind of where you come from and, and who you are and what you're what you're inspired by. Okay. Well, first of all, full transparency, this sure. whole high school uh, principal of the year, you have to understand there's only one high school in the state of Iowa, so not that big a deal. Okay, yeah, so that's yeah, first sure, thing you understand. Sure. So. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, you know, first of all, I would say this is that you know, I think a lot of the story goes into, you know, where this all begins and why do you, you know, why do people decide to become educators, right? Sure. Where's that why at? People become educators because someone influences them. They want to emulate somebody because they aspire to be so, like someone who impacted their life. Could be a principal, could be a teacher, could be a coach, could be a secretary, could be the school nurse, teacher librarian, right? Uh, but some people go into it because they have not good experiences, right? And so they go into the profession because... Well, they want to make an impact to make a difference. They feel like for whatever reason, they didn't have that good experience and they want to go create that good experience for other students and so forth. And then other people, Jeff, my experience is they just have a gift, right? Some people just have a gift for it. I don't know if you've met these people. They just have a certain aura about them. Kids love to be around them. So, but in my case, it was the second one, right? I just didn't have a good school experience again. So as you look back on your school career, I don't begrudge any of those educators. I think they all did the best they could. But when you come into a community of migrant workers, monolingual, uh, the son of parents who are not formally educated, um, then what happens is you're trying to figure out where you fit in. And the truth of the matter is you never feel connected. You don't feel like you belong. You feel like you're always uh, on the outside looking in. And as you begin your school career, if you start off not speaking the language, not um, having good experiences, then eventually what happens very quickly, you can lose your way. And that's kind of what happened to me. So I didn't have really great experiences. Uh, again, I don't begrudge any of those people, but I had some really good teachers that really impacted me. But there were also some teachers who didn't impact me. Well, actually they did, but they did it in a negative way, unfortunately. Um, but I had one in particular, and his name was Kelly Morgan, my assistant principal, who truly was my champion. And so he is somebody I looked up to. 
And, um, and although I didn't have a good school experience, I know this, that um, I love to work. And yet I felt like I was labeled and kind of tagged as somebody who was kind of lazy and didn't care about school, was kind of disrespectful, that type of thing. Certainly a chip on my shoulder. But, um, but part of it was, to be honest with you, Jeff, is I felt like they never really got to know me, right? They didn't really invest time in me to really understand my story, my background, my parents. If they would have, they would have found out I was actually a really hard worker. I had a tremendous work ethic. You know, that was modeled to me by my parents. But anyway, all that kind of, I lost my way a little bit through that process. And, um, but I love to work. And then eventually I did graduate from high school with the help of my assistant principal, Kelly Morgan. So I give him a lot of credit. He was a true champion. And then, um, you know, I took some time off. I went into the world of work. I wanted to go work and, you know, make money and do all those things, make my parents proud and, and go prove to people that, you know, they shouldn't have judged me like that. But about a, a year after doing a sales job, um, I had an experience that reminded me, well, this is probably why I need to pursue an education. And so I decided to go to college. And when I did, I was successful at it because I was ready to do it. I wanted to do it. It wasn't somebody who was making me do it or anything like that. So, so yeah, so I went to the University of Iowa, graduated from Iowa with a degree and uh, and teaching degree and moved to Milwaukee. I started my career in Milwaukee Public Schools, working in the inner city. Why Milwaukee? I wanted to work with kids who look like me, kids who talk like me, and kids who struggle like me. And I wanted to be in a bigger city and Milwaukee seemed to be a really good fit for me. So started my career as a classroom teacher in middle school. Um, did that for four years, and then believe it or not, Jeff, somebody saw some potential in me, encouraged me, and supported me, inspired me, to, hey, you should consider maybe the principalship. So I pursued my principalship at Cardinal Stretch College, and at the age of 26, somebody handed me the keys to a building. Yeah, and that started my principal career. Where, but you were at several schools as a principal, or is that? your high school entry point yeah that's my middle school entry point in milwaukee public schools and then from that i went back to iowa so it went like this four years as a teacher three years five years 14 years and so, the last 14 years of bettendorf the one you mentioned so when you went to iowa and you went back to iowa mm -hmm. right yeah because you were in milwaukee and you described the reason and rationale mm -hmm. right that you were looking for to work with some people that look like you that you yep. feel like you could relate to but then you went back to Iowa. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'm curious uh, yeah, about, right? Tell me about that transition back. Yeah. Well, because I was from Iowa, because I had done my student teaching uh, at uh, at a school in Iowa City, Iowa, where the University of Iowa was at, um, I felt like I had a really good teaching experience, student teaching experience. Um, my cooperating teacher and the fact that I was from Iowa City, I had moved to Milwaukee. I love there, and I probably would have stayed there. I, I mean, I could have seen myself there. But like for many of us, our life changes because of what happens in our lives. So, you know, you start having children. They're not around their grandparents. They're not around their cousins. And you see maybe that's where you want them to be. And then you make the decision to move back to Iowa because the people in Iowa value you now. They see where you were from. They see what you're doing. And they reach out, and that's exactly what happened. Someone reached out to me and said, hey, we need you to come back to Iowa. You know, we know we were here, so I went yeah, back to Iowa City. Yeah, this new mm -hmm. and improved Jimmy, we want him back. <laughs> well, and I also had some experience working in their city now, right? And even Iowa, even though at the time, if you think about it, right, this is the mid-90s, their demographics are changing too. Sure. And at that time, we're getting an influx of kids from, you know, inner city Chicago, uh, a lot of migrant workers coming into the communities and, quite frankly, struggling with how to deal with that. And I give them a lot of credit that they looked at that and said, hey, we need some diversity amongst our staff, especially amongst our leadership. And maybe we need to look and search for people who, you know, have that background that um, the kids will look up to and say, hey, someday I can, I want to do that. So you, I mean, I, I could answer this, but not as well as you can. So tell us, tell us what you do now. So you were, mm -hmm. you spent obviously significant time as a principal there. Are yeah. Currently, I think. 22 years. Four books mm -hmm. under your name, right? So Handle with Care, Live Your Excellence, Culturize, and Recalibrate the Culture. Right. Yep, yep. And we're going to kind of be talking about the the last two of those today, kind of going back and forth. But mm -hmm. um, you do more than just write. Yeah. So, what was that transition like? And talk to us about what you're mm -hmm. doing now. Yeah. So I think it, Jeff, I'd, I'd say this. I probably have to go back to around 2005 or five or six because remember I took that principalship at 26, and I'll be honest, I wanted to be great for my students. I wanted to be great for my staff. I wanted to be great for the community. 
And people who are minority, might this might resonate with them, but I want to be great for my people. I want to be great for the Latino community because sure. I, I was tired of people saying, hey, people of color can't lead schools effectively. And when you become a principal at 26 and you're young and you're passionate and you're confident and you have a tremendous work ethic, you can believe you can do anything. And I mean, I want to be great for people, but the truth of the matter is I did the best I could. But I, honestly, because it's such a large school district, again, we don't begrudge the school districts. They do the best they can too, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody really ever helped me, right, become an effective leader. I was kind of left out there to figure it out on my own. And um, over time, you realize that you are making mistakes as you go through it, but it's you don't see that at the time, right? Because again, you don't really have great mentors, you're not being really supported and so forth. So the bottom line is about 12 years into the principalship, I what I call lost my way. And what that means is I got to the point where I was frustrated, I was tired, I was exhausted, and quite frankly, I was tired of dealing with adults who didn't love children. I couldn't understand why do you work in schools if you don't love kids, right? And so what I couldn't see at the time, Jeff, is that I started spending my time going to what I call the perimeter. I'd go to the perimeter. So I'd see a behavior, I'd see something happen. Um, I wouldn't get the results that I wanted as a leader. People weren't doing what I wanted them to do. And when that happened, I would get frustrated, but I'd go to the perimeter. And what that means is I would blame them. I certainly wouldn't blame myself. I mean, I'm doing my job. They're sure. not doing their job. So, yeah, yeah. so I went to the perimeter. And so what I couldn't see at the time is I had been on the perimeter for a long time, probably most of my career, Jeff, to be honest with you. And uh, I finally just got to the point where I guess you call it a, you know, a crisis, a, mid, a midlife crisis point. Um, but I lost my way. And the bottom line is I decided I was going to leave the profession. I was just tired. I was done. Mm -hmm. So literally one day I made the decision. I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. My wife at the time was really worried about me. She saw this guy like he was broken. I was kind of like what I call the edge of the couch moment, right? I'm sure hopefully some of your listeners can relate to that, what that means, right? If you've ever been to the on the edge of the couch, either in your personal or professional life, it's not a good place. Yeah, I, a, I wouldn't know. I've never, yeah. I've never been there, but, <laughs> well, but, but tell me about it. Yeah, right? it's a lonely place. It's a dark place. It's depressing. Sometimes it's hopeless. You just feel like a failure. I don't know how to say it, right? That's the bottom line. You wanted to be great. You look 12 years later and like, what the heck happened to me? Like, what happened? This isn't how it was supposed to turn out. And so I kind of had that moment. And so the good news is uh, my wife at the time, like I said, reached out to my former bosses, those people who believed in me and gave me an opportunity. And the next thing I know, I found myself back in Milwaukee having a little intervention. <laughs> and uh, these, and my one boss said to me, Jeff, and I've never forgotten this, and I use this all the time in my talks today. And he said to me, what happened to the young man who came to the inner city and sat in that interview chair and promised me he was going to change the world? Well, truth is, I lost my way. So, so the good news is with their support, they helped me find my way back. But there were two things that came out of it. One, Jimmy, you're on the perimeter. Now, they didn't call it that. That's what I coined it as later. I just talked about it. But basically, they said you're blaming everybody else, and you got to really look at yourself, son. You're really going to have to reflect it. What are you contributing to this issue, right? Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. But two, one of the things they asked me that day that I really never thought about is, where do you lead from? Like, where does it come from? Like, you have all these experiences, Jimmy. You've talked about these. We've seen this. But we don't hear that today in your complaints and arguments and whatever you want to you know, complain about. And I hadn't thought about that for a while. Like, well, who am I as a leader? Who do I want to be, right? And so that goes to your core. And believe it or not, that weekend, I began writing the four core principles of Culturize. Hmm. And really what it is, is those behaviors, those four core principles is like a behavior framework for me. Holds me accountable. Holds me accountable to be the leader I want to be, the father I want to be, the husband I want to be, the friend I want to be. It's because it helps you live your life in every domain the same way. Like you've seen these people, right? They live one way in one domain, they go to a different domain, they behave differently. Sure. But a core value system allows you to stay steady and to be the person you always wanted to be. So that was probably my biggest takeaway from that was where are you leading from? In other words, what is your vision? How are you gonna behave in order to achieve that vision? Okay. And the third component is, is what is your leadership language? And how do you use those four core principles as your leadership language to influence people in the organization because that is what great leaders do. Yeah. They influence other people to see themselves as great leaders as well. But you got to see everybody as a leader because everybody has the capacity to lead. And then the last thing 
it recommended that I reach out to this gentleman that I brought into my school who changed my life because he taught me more about leadership in two years than anybody had ever taught me before in 12 years of school or on the job, just trying to figure it out. And that's where Recalibrate comes from. Mm -hmm. So I assume when you share your story, when you share the you know, edge of the couch moment mm -hmm. or time in your life that you had, I have to, I have to assume that you get a lot of leaders who can relate. Yep. Right. I mean, I actually think that, um, you know, I've been there before probably numerous times. Mm -hmm. I also think that leaders now, based upon the pressure, which, by the way, is different than when you <laughs> yep. were in the seat Absolutely. and when I was in the seat, and that probably wasn't that long ago, but it changed quickly. Yeah. Right? Very quickly. So I have to assume, number one, your message resonates. The you What you call the perimeter, I used mm -hmm. to call the blame game. It mm -hmm. happens a lot in yep. education, right? So it's very easy to blame parents or parents to blame school and teachers to blame leadership and vice versa. And, yeah. you know, it's sometimes harder to blame kids, but we sometimes mm -hmm. do anyway. We still do. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just, I just have to imagine that that really helps when you're talking with leaders across the country. Yeah know that you've been there before, but you've also had some kind of epiphany along the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, obviously, like today, for example, right? It always makes me feel good when people come back and say, oh my God, I feel like you were talking to me today, right? Like I related to that, and I never imagined that you would have been in that position, right? So there is a little bit of vulnerability, and that's a great, to me, quality and characteristics of effective sure. leaders, right? They have to be a little vulnerable. None of us have this figured out, right? I mean, no one has a monopoly on this. We're all evolving, we're just trying to figure it out. But there are certainly things that are better practices than, you know, that we know these things are effective practices. But the truth of the matter is, here's here's four things I always try to do, Jeff, when I, when I work with schools or principals or leaders or whatever. Number one is I try to be very honest and say, listen, hopefully what I share today is one, it's going to resonate with you because it's going to say, listen, it brings value. And what it says is, is it validates the work you're already doing, right? So hopefully most of what I share today is already validating most schools are doing a really good job, right? They're not doing, some aren't doing a great job, but they're doing effective jobs. But we don't have to blow up systems, right? We just have to go in there and really recognize where are the areas that we are falling a little short and what are we going to do about it? And that's what I kind of call the average in the organization. Like we don't want the average to become the standard, but that's what happens in a lot of organizations because that eventually turns to apathy and apathy is not good for our culture. So hopefully I'm validating it too. Hopefully what I share is something they're already doing, but it has a little bit different twist to it. And that little twist is enough to take them over the over that ledge a little bit, right? To take them to another level. Three, maybe there's something hopefully I share today that is somewhat new. They've never tried it, never done it, never even really thought about it. But honestly, Jeff, my experience is most of what I talk about, they already know. It's interesting, right? That they already know these things. But the question is this, then why aren't they doing it? because of those things, because of the pressures, because of the fact that they move too quickly, right? They're trying to do everything. They're trying to be fixers and servant leaders, and they just exhaust themselves because they feel that they're there and they're supposed to take care of all these problems, but the reality is you can't. Number two, you can't sustain that. It's not healthy. You're not building capacity, and you can't sustain that, and over time, you're going to end up burned out and exhausted. And that's the mental health issues that I'm seeing in a lot of leaders right now. It's more from stress. I mean, certainly there are those that are a little bit more severe for whatever reasons. Those are to another level. But most of what I'm dealing with is stress-related mental health issues. Trying to fix everything, completely exhausted, overwhelmed, and quite frankly, just don't know what to do because they feel like a failure because they can't do everything. And then they're really hard on themselves. They really are. And they feel like failures. And then eventually they start moving towards the edge of the couch, which means they start doubting. They question whether it's worth it whether they can keep doing it or whether it's even making a difference. And now they think maybe it's time to go do something else. So remind me, because if I don't come back to this word urgency, okay. I want to okay. make sure that you help me mm -hmm. uh, navigate. Because I want to talk to you about how in an environment like you just mm -hmm. described, we still keep kind of the, 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 the pedal to the metal and focus on creating urgency in very stressed organizations. But yeah. before we do that, yep. I want to kind of go backwards to the concept of culture. Okay. You know, culture is what I describe mm -hmm. as one of the, one of, there's others, uh, abused C words, right? And so mm -hmm. um, culture's one, collaborates another, where mm -hmm. we throw it out and yeah. we use it, but we 
don't always dial down to what it truly means, what it looks mm -hmm. like and sounds like, feels like, um, et cetera, especially as leaders. We talk about yeah. culture all the time. So from culturize to recalibrate, mm -hmm. you know, whether I love Roland Barth, he said, yeah, this yeah. is the way we do things around right, here, yeah. right? And that comes from a belief system and often a past mm -hmm. history and so forth, but also very hard to change the culture mm -hmm. and organization. Help us understand and get to the same plane you are as you talk about culture as it relates to leaders. Yeah. It's interesting you bring up Roland Barth, right? And so I just take from that, right? Like everything that we learn over the course of our careers as we're evolving, right? Whether you're a leader in a school or a leader in a business, to me it's leadership is leadership, right? It is the most important thing. And honestly, I believe most of the issues that we face today in organizations are leadership issues. Right? I believe that. Okay, but we have to also recognize that everybody's a leader. So that kind of goes to what I believe is that everybody's responsible for the culture and climate of an organization. Once we begin to put that on one individual, I think we're in trouble a little bit. Okay, certainly leaders influence that, they impact that, they have to model that, but they cannot do it all by themselves. Okay, but if I had to define culture, right, we see a bazillion definitions of culture. I just try to keep things simple because I think when we're working with principals or whoever we're working with, I want to keep it simple for them so it's clear to them. To me, culture is behavior. Just look how people are behaving in the organization. It'll tell you everything you need to know about the culture. We know that when people are not behaving appropriately, when we tolerate certain behaviors, when we allow behaviors to happen in our schools, when we allow people to opt out, when people are behaving in ways that do not align with our values, that is your real culture. Doesn't matter what the words on the wall say. Doesn't matter what the mission statement says. Doesn't matter what the vision or the belief statement say. What matters is don't tell me, show me. I want to see it. So that's the first thing is how are people behaving in the organization? That's the true culture, in my opinion, in an organization. And I believe this, that people will behave however we allow them to behave. And so when people are not meeting our expectations, the question is, what are we doing about it? Well, what I find out is, do we really teach people how to navigate that process? It's not easy, right? So we have to teach people how to, how to manage that. But it is a skill. And so if we don't practice it, right? So one question I always ask, just like I asked today, is do you be, believe, in my opinion, one of the things I've learned over the years that is still true today, is that in organizations that are struggling, it's because be, people are behaving in ways that do not align with our values. In other words, we allow people to behave in ways that are not appropriate. And those are not teacher issues, those are leadership issues. And uh, I think most people agree with that, but they don't know what to do with it. Because when they try, what they find out is because it's a skill, and if we don't have the skill, we start to try to address it, and then we get pushed back, we get something negative that comes out of it, maybe it's a complaint, maybe it's a grievance, maybe it's a negative comment on an evaluation, maybe it's a negative comment on a culture survey, and all of a sudden now it's like, mm, I'm hurting my culture. Maybe I'll just pull back. And so what I learned is, yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe I'm not going to deal with it because I tried to deal with it and now I'm getting beat up for it. You know what? Maybe I'll just let it go. But it's a skill. So then we don't practice it. And because we don't practice it, we don't get any better at it. And so that's how I see it. So let me, let me roll out a dilemma. Okay. And you, you can kind of help me walk, or walk me through your thoughts or strategy mm -hmm. on it. So first off, I think um, leaders right now, and I'm agreeing with you, are kind of navigating this all-time uh, high as it relates to anxiety, stress, mm -hmm. burden, sometimes expectations that are really unrealistic okay. in a very kind of polarizing world, right, that lands in their laps. So um, I have empathy for that. In the meantime, if ever there is an opportunity to create change, in school mm -hmm. as it relates to supporting all students, now would be the time, yep. right? Because we have been through so much change, involuntary change in a mm -hmm. number of ways for the past five years that our foundation has been shaken. Mm -hmm. So it's an incredible opportunity to rebuild a foundation, maybe aligned to some things that we're um, more concerned with as opposed to concerns that are placed upon us. Mm -hmm. I think that's hard for leaders to do, especially Correct. when they are burdened. So how, when you are working with leaders, how are you honest, empathetic, and still push them 
yeah. to kind of you know seize on this urgent opportunity, which in my mind is mm -hmm. right before us. And before you answer, I do want to agree. Yeah. I think teachers make the biggest difference when it comes to having an impact on kids as it relates to in the school. Mm -hmm. But I think you can put great teachers in a building. They won't meet their capacity unless they have great leadership mm -hmm. at the school as well as in the system. So I'm in full agreement yeah. that mm -hmm. this work is on leaders. Yep. So where do we begin with that one? There's a few things I would share about that. Number one is, is that when you ask me how do I currently work with leaders, here's one thing I know. I always go back and when were we, when were we the best versions of ourselves? And when I think about that, I think I know where I was the best version of myself because my boss reminded me what happened to the young man who sat in that interview chair and promised me he was going to change the world. Yeah, that naive kid. Yeah, that was the best version of me, though. That means every question they asked me, I answered in a way that they thought, hmm, this could be our guy. This is the person we've been looking for. Did you hear how he talked about kids? Did you hear how he talked about relationships? Did you talk about? Did you hear how he talked about collaboration? She's talking here how he talked about processes. This guy's got some skills. This is the guy I think that can help us move our organization to the next level. The good news is this: everybody who's employed sat in that interview chair, and somebody looked at him and said, "That's our guy. That's our that's our person. That's our lady." Right. So that's the good news, right? But then when we look at behaviors. They no longer align with what they said in that interview chair. And why not? Because everybody has experiences that influences the way they behave. And over time, people can lose their way. And so if we can begin to recognize that, then what happens is when we go into organizations and we look around the culture, the behavior of people, what we do is we start with this question. I wonder why they're doing that. I wonder why that student's putting his head on the desk. I wonder why that teacher's not doing hall duty. I wonder why that teacher's yelling at that kid. So it comes from a place of curiosity, a place of wonder, a place of grace. We don't judge. How can we judge? We already know this person doesn't want to be that way. And by the way, we hired them. So if we hired them, how did they become this way? So at the end of the day, what I try to do, Jeff, is try to bring a sense of what I would call calmness to the leadership role right? A, a sense of steadiness. Now, again, I don't have monopoly on this, right? I'm not even saying I'm right. I tell people all the time, listen, just because I say it doesn't mean it's that's what you should go do or that I know more than other people. Like, I'm just telling you from my experiences. Those are my experiences, my personal experiences, but more than the hundreds of people that I've coached, actually, probably into the thousands now in my career. But what I believe is this, is that one of the things that I really never understood about leadership that Jim taught me was the power of frameworks. Because frameworks bring clarity to us. They allow us to articulate things in a way that bring clarity to people. Because when, when we're not clear with whatever it is we want people to do or why we're doing something, I believe that creates trepidation, anxiety, worry, stress, um, it allows people to begin or it creates this feeling of hesitation. And then over time, my, ex my experience is that people begin to lose confidence um, because they're not clear. It's, it's the whole Brene Brown thing. Clear is kind, unclear is unkind. Why? Because, well, if you're not clear, well, how does this person know what to do if you're not clear what you want them to do? And more importantly, how are we providing the support, the guidance, the resources? And here's the big one, time. So we hear this constant, hey, t t uh, change is scary, or teachers don't like change. Really? Is that really what it is? I'm not sure I agree with that. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with people doing, walking through processes, bringing people together. If that's true, then there is no such thing as collective efficacy, right? But collective efficacy says what? Bring a group of people together, share a vision, right? And what I say, use the four most powerful words in leadership. I need your help. Put a process into place that gives them a voice, that allows them to have some investment in this, right? Because they know a lot. There's your building your capacity. Put a plan into place, and then together, together we work on this and move the system. So frameworks are critical because they help us be the person we want to be. So, for example, remind me again, what was the class that we took in principal school, Jeff, that taught us how to <laughs> implement effective change? What was that class called? Well, what was the class we 
took in principal school how to have that very difficult conversation with that person who's underperforming. Well, it but, depends on what because I didn't take that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 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 But right. we're expected to have all these skills. And so that's why I kind of go back is if you're asking me ultimately what is it I do is I take people back to the interview chair because I think that's the best version of them. I get them to reflect on who do they want to be. We start working on our, who our core is because that's going to be your leadership language and how you begin to influence and what framework are you going to operate from to keep you steady because frameworks will slow you down and, in my opinion, allow you to get a better result. And so we need to be really clear to people, this is what it looks like, and more importantly, here's why. Well, so I, I want to compliment you on Recalibrate in that what, one thing that was so attractive to me is that I didn't find you just waxing and waning philosophically, right? I, I really felt the book to be um, extremely pragmatic. You talk about frameworks, but there are protocols. There's the mm -hmm. what, one, two, four strategy. One, two, four, Did I say yeah. that, right? Mm -hmm. The yeah, yeah. processes on how to manage complex conversations and so forth. So I really found, found that the models um, to engage people were um, so clear and helpful and pr potentially providing some tools that sometimes leaders espouse to, but they just don't have mm -hmm. any sort of task analysis on how to get from A to B. Yeah. So that must be one of the things that you get feedback on is providing mm -hmm. some of these frameworks and protocols that help somebody who believe the same thing as you do, but they mm -hmm. may not know exactly where to that's begin. Right. Is that accurate? Yeah, and that's where Jim really helped me, right? Because think of it this way. Like when if when you look when we talked earlier about the perimeter, right? So just reframe it. See it differently. That's that's probably the most important thing is because I believe every organization, Jeff, has a culture to the organization. But what we don't see is beneath that layer of culture that we think it's here is a subculture or what I call the undercurrent. It's the undercurrent that exhausts us. That's what's overwhelming us and taking up all our time. But the hard part is to understand is that we are, we are the undercurrent. <laughs> we're the undercurrent in our professional life, but we're also the undercurrent in our personal life. So I'm on, I'm on the undercurrent with my wife or I'm the undercurrent with my children. But I'm also the undercurrent with my staff or my employees or the people that work for me. In other words, when I don't get the results I want, I've got to believe they're doing the best they can. So I must not have done a very good job of teaching them. So I've got to teach better, right? I got to approach everything from the heart of a teacher. So when you talk about those processes and frameworks and protocols, I believe the most important part of any process is giving people a voice. So when we don't get the results that we want, whatever that result is we're looking for, as a result as a father, result as a husband, result as a boss, then I get off the perimeter and I realize this, then something's wrong with my process. And often what I learn is because I'm moving too quickly. I'm making decisions in isolation. I make decisions when I'm frustrated. I make decisions when I don't have enough information. I make assumptions. Whatever that is, I'm doing something that's not giving me a good result. But the one, two, four is probably the most powerful of all that, Jeff, because what I'm trying to say is this and recalibrate. I'm not saying that you should use my protocols and my frameworks. What I'm saying to you is use a framework, use a process, use a protocol. But the one, two, four allows you to develop those frameworks and processes and protocols with your people because your people know the undercurrents that you're creating. So if you simply just reframed it, and I would say this, hey, I'm thinking about implementing this change in our organization. If I do that, what undercurrent will that create? Help me see what I don't see. And that is healthy for you because you will avoid the undercurrents that they see that you don't because you slow down and go to your people because you have a process, a one, two, four, that gets feedback from people to protect you so you don't create undercurrents and it's a healthier culture. Can we talk about undercurrents a little bit more? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so you talked about we are the undercurrents. So sometimes mm -hmm. it has to do with us and our behavior, kind of the, the looking in the mirror strategy, yeah. right? Um, do you also find, though, that um, leaders sometimes fall victim to some of the undercurrent that's there? I, I see what I call as tyranny of the urgent right now with leaders. Them mm -hmm. running around, yearning to serve, but in the meantime, sometimes forgetting to lead. Yeah. Right? And so mm -hmm. uh, some of that is probably created by them. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's maybe a lack of discipline or a, last, a lack of know-how mm -hmm. or experience or frameworks, protocols, et cetera. Yeah. Sometimes the undercurrent is created by them, as you described. Sometimes 
Do you ever feel like they have a hard time just going against the current, if that makes any sense? Or maybe that analogy doesn't even align to what you mean by undercurrent. No, if, if I hear you clearly, here's maybe see if this answers the question that you're asking. But number one is when I see a behavior, that's what coaching is to me, first of all. I'm observing, right? I'm not a consultant because consultants tell people what to do. I'm not here to tell anybody what to do. I just observe. I give them things to reflect on. I want to see if they can see it. And then if with good questioning, I can see if I can get them to see what they don't see, right? So they kind of come to their own realization, okay? Self-awareness, let's call it for a second, all right? But here's how I want you to see it. Number one is why are they behaving that way? That's one thing. Number two, my experience is this, especially right now more than ever, and it kind of goes back to what you said earlier, it's the urgency of what's happening right now to us, okay? But because I have no framework to draw from, I'll move quickly in the urgent. Because, in other words, why am I running around trying to fix everything, solve everything, save everybody, right? Servant leadership. So if you're working with someone who has a servant leader, um, servant leadership mentality, they often are fixers, right? I'm a fixer. I'll be honest. I'm a fixer. I like to fix things too. Mm -hmm. Because if I fix a problem and solve a problem, I like the way it makes me feel. I feel like I've done some good. People feel like they're happy. So of course we kind of land. Most leaders are fixers by nature. But the problem is this, is that if you ever met these people as they fix, 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 and they go over here and complain about it, complain about it, complain about it, they have to fix everything. It's interesting, right? They do it, but then they complain about it because it exhausts them. The other thing that comes from fix-it mode is that when you're in fix-it mode, if you fix it and fix it and fix it, but what happens when you try to fix it and it doesn't get fixed? Who do they blame? You. And then I get my feelings hurt and then I become resentful. So we have to be able to see that dynamic that's happening there in that transition. The worst part about being fixers is you're not building any capacity. So you're really not teaching, you're just fixing and it's exhausting. And I'll let you keep fixing it for me too if you keep fixing it for me. So really, who's doing all the work? It's what we see in the classroom with teachers. They're fixing all the problems for kids. Principals are trying to fix all the problems for the teachers, right? So we get into this fix-it mode, and to me, fix-it is exhausting. So I tell people, it's not your job to fix everybody. Let's just release all that stress off your shoulders. That's part of what's happening. I can't get to all this, Jimmy. I can't fix all this, right? Because it's not your job to fix it. So for me, as I try to go from the psychology of it, Jeff, is to get them out of fix-it mode, but I have to explain to them clearly why I'm doing that. But here's what I believe our job is. I believe our job is to bring the best versions of ourselves to every situation, because I can control that. And if I bring a better version of myself based on core principles, in other words, how am I gonna behave, and I'm clear with that, and I ask people permission to help me be that person, my experience is people get much better results because I don't have to fix everything and I can't. It's not your job, teacher, to save the kid. It's not your job to fix the kid. It's not even your job to pass the kid. By the way, when I say that, teachers love me now. Yeah. Oh my God, finally a leader <laughs> that gets right. it, right? Finally he, somebody he said, I don't have to pass the kid because right now every day they're told me I have to pass the kid, I have to graduate the kid, right? But I give him permission not to, but you know what I tell him? But you can't quit on kids because when you quit on a kid, you go to the perimeter. Mm -hmm. I can't teach a kid who puts his head on the desk. I can't teach a kid who doesn't try. I can't teach a kid who doesn't come to school. Sounds like we're quitting on a kid. See, I'm not asking you to fix him. I'm just asking you not to quit on him. So well, now we need a process to kind of go through. And again, not everybody agrees with me on that. Not everybody sees it the way I see it. But I'll challenge my process over anybody else. And we can walk in and actually do it. And let's see who gets a better result. Well, I, I don't think, you know, of course, I've uh, I've read two of your books, but I don't I don't think you're 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 changing any sort of you're not lowering expectations. Nope. What I see you doing is showing empathy by asking about why behind behavior. Yep. Behavior still needs to be addressed. Right. But you're asking about why. So if we're going to expect, right. if we're going to uh, make some assumptions or uh, maybe try to be empathetic for our teachers, mm -hmm. we would also expect that our teachers are empathetic for their kids. It's true. Right? Exactly. And that's what a core values will do. That's what a framework will do for you. That's why we create the framework. That's what culturize is really about. I mean, let's be honest. If I'm in a school and I say to this to principals, raise your hand right now if you have a staff member in your building that should have retired five years ago. Everybody lifts their hands. Of course. Right? But then if you really look at it, I say, but wait a second, think about that just for a second. Why do we allow these people to behave that way? And how much damage have they done over the last five years? So is that really a teacher issue? Or is it a leadership issue, right? Because we're not sure what to do with it. And again, we give them grace because these are very complex things. 
But let's just take that same example, Jeff, just for a second and say you have a teacher who you think should retire five years ago. Now watch me help you reframe that with a core principle framework. Core principle number one, or excuse me, core principle number four of culture, I says what? Merge and hope. So what does that mean? Believe that teacher wants to be great. So now I've got to shift my mindset to say, wait a second, I probably shouldn't be labeling that teacher. We hired that teacher actually, and now we're saying they should retire. So how did we let them get to that place? Well, maybe our onboarding process wasn't good, Jeff. Maybe we never had a conversation. Maybe we let them behave that way yeah, for a long time. It could be a host time. of things. A host sure. of things, right. But a core principle reminds me that they want to be great, so therefore I don't label the teacher. Core principle number one, be a champion, reminds me, don't give up on this teacher. Invest more time to understand that story, why they behave the way they behave. Core principle number three, carry the banner. That means when I go to have a conversation with her, I can't go in elevated. I can't go in there hot. I can't go in there accusatory. I can't go in there with a tone. I got to go in there with compassion, with empathy, with to try to understand how did they get here? We hired these people. Let me go and have a conversation. But the key is this. When they walk away, will they carry the banner for me? They will if I conducted myself appropriately. It's how I sure. behave during that interaction and conversation. By the way, core principle number two, expect excellence. I'm not going to let them behave that way. No, I'm not going to let them behave that way. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to model for them because exactly what you said, and that was critical, if we're going to ask that teacher, don't give up on that kid, well, then I better not give up on that teacher right? because I'm explaining this, I'm displaying the same behaviors. So frameworks help us be who we want. That's who I want to be. That's who I, that's who I said on the interview chair. When you asked me in the interview, Jeff, hey, Jimmy, if you got hired here as the principal, how would you work with a teacher who's underperforming? You know what I didn't say? Oh, I'd evaluate them out of the building. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd make a lot of assumptions. I'd make a list and I'd make a lot of assumptions and I'd do everything I could to fire that teacher. Yeah. Nobody said that in the interview. I'd spread rumors and whine. Yeah, but look at our behavior now. And that's my point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different way of seeing, understanding the behavior of human psychology and why do people behave the way they behave. I don't know, but let's go invest some time and find out. Then eventually what will happen, now here's the end. People always say, but Jimmy, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I'll say, okay, at the end, here's your final two decisions. Is this an issue of will or an issue of skill? If it's an issue of skill, then you got to keep teaching as mm -hmm. long as they want to keep getting better. If it's an issue of will, in other words, they know what they're supposed to do, but they're telling you basically they're not going to do it then your job is to change the conversation because you can't let people behave however they want to behave. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're not a consultant, you're a coach. I'm a coach, I'm okay. a teacher. Mm -hmm. So as you're coaching, and and we've seen incredible coaches, we've seen incredible um, music teachers, for example, mm -hmm. some of the feedback that they give. As you're, as you're giving feedback and holding the hands and nurturing leaders throughout the country, mm -hmm. Um, what we know now is we are currently experiencing maybe the highest educated, but the least experienced leader force we've seen in schools and yep. in school districts. And we're promised that's going to continue. Mm -hmm. That's not over. Nope. That trend is going to actually speed up. So that being the case, number one, there's the gift of those first few years, that naivete that you talked mm -hmm. about when you were at your best, yep. right? I think we, somehow we have to capture that. Mm -hmm. But there's also a lack of experience and frameworks. What are you noticing in terms of trends of mm -hmm. leaders right now, successes and challenges, compared to maybe just five years ago? Yeah. I think when you and I probably first started, Jeff, we could make mistakes, and those mistakes stayed pretty much in-house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I could make a lot of mistakes. Hey, they, by the way, thank goodness. Yeah, from, from, exactly. From my perspective. Exactly, right? It, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you could make mistakes and get a lot of passes. Today, you're not getting a pass. Mm -hmm. So that scrutiny is probably the biggest pressure most leaders face right now. They almost sometimes, before they act, they're hesitating about what is this going to mean for me if I make this decision? If I do this, what's going to happen? They're constantly under, under the microscope. They're being scrutinized. Uh, they're being uh, judged very quickly. And uh, yeah, there's just not a lot of room for error. So it's a lot to carry on. So that's probably what I noticed, number one. Number two, the fact that you said exactly that, as they come in younger and younger, right? We're turning over leadership constantly, right? I believe that every time you turn over leadership, you're in trouble with your culture because you're starting all over unless, unless you have a really good onboarding process and a really good transition process for people to continue the work that's already been done. But if not, it's like you're starting over all the time. Yeah. Then what happens is we get an apathetic staff of saying this two sh this person's not going to be here very long. So yeah. in a couple of years they'll be out of here. Yeah, yeah. So that's not good either. And so there's a lot of that. So as the people come in younger and younger, what I would say to people is 
we really have to provide support. And that's where I feel blessed because I do think people recognize it. I think there's a reason why our company continues to grow and grow and grow and grow because I think people see the value in coaching. I believe everybody should have a coach, everybody. The best athletes in the world have coaches, right? They don't hesitate. Whether they have a life coach, a, you know, this coach, right, for their head or whatever, or the skill sets of, of a coach is really important. And so the trends that I see right now are young leaders coming in trying to do too much, right, because they don't quite understand how to build that capacity. Um, and there's lots of reasons why they do that, right? Some of them worry about turning things over to somebody, or maybe they try to do it and it didn't get a good result. So guess who's getting blamed? They are. Well, sure. it's not worth it anymore. Then I'll just do it myself. So there's a lot of that going on. But the pressure of having to do everything, um, I think, either comes internally from us, because uh, that's kind of our DNA, right? We go in there. We yep. want to go in there and save the world. And, and that's not a bad thing. But how do you channel that? And how do we teach them how to become more effective leaders, which to me means they're influencers. They truly build and grow more leaders. And they teach along the way. Um, and that's that's what I try to do, and I see that's the skill that they're lacking, not by any, because they want to, they just don't see that. But once you make that clear that that's their responsibility is to grow more leaders, and here's how you can do it, and then give them a voice of what does that look like and how do you currently do it, then you can begin to kind of move the needle a little bit quicker. I don't think it should take always five years to to impact culture. We don't have five years. We don't have five years. I think you can impact culture literally 30 seconds, one minute at a time. Not in everything, but certainly in a lot of things, because it's about behavior and how we treat people, how we connect with people. How quickly can you build trust with people? The the three to five years that we used to hear and sometimes still do. That by the way, that's arbitrary. Yeah. There's no there's Just there's made it up. Yeah. yeah. There, there's no really good research yeah. that shows for this size of an organization, this is how long it takes. Yeah. Aligned to these leadership skills. There's there's no research on that. It's yeah. just what we say. Yeah, I think we right? said to give ourselves a pass. Yeah, so probably, <laughs> probably right. Probably <laughs> to say right. I need time. I need time. Right. But so, there are some things that certainly, what do you do? What, you know, what can you do in your first six months? What can you do in your first year? But a lot of that is relationship building. Does it, cause you have to build some trust, but it shouldn't have to take a year. It's how are we being intentional? What's our process and system that we set up? And have we been clear why we need to do this? But again, there's a lot of things that come into play there, but yeah, there's certainly no easy answers, but there are certain things that we can do better to get better results. And I still believe it's, it starts with us. So you, you won't like this last question. We, okay. we ask this of everyone, uh -huh. but um, you won't like it based upon kind of your style and your coaching mentality okay. that, that I've picked up on. Um, we say in the, the leadership circle, we support leaders, that circles are better than rows. Right, that's okay. a that's a quote that we stole. Okay. Nice. Um, the concept is we think when there is a dilemma and a challenge, we want to tap the collective wisdom by getting leaders around a table together. So most okay. of our strategies uh -huh. are actually not talking at. Yeah. This is the one thing that we do to produce content, to push to leaders, to try to take sometimes text mm -hmm. and so forth and make sure. it digestible and pragmatic for them. But if you and I were to pretend yeah. that here we are at this table, and at this table we have superintendents, deputy or assistant superintendents down through principals, mm -hmm. and we are ending the conversation and the floor is yours to provide some very, just here are my last words of encouragement or wisdom I wanna give you, kind of mm -hmm. my drop the mic moment yeah. in an elevator speech, so to, so, so to speak. What would you wanna say to leaders right now? Number one, what's your vision? Number two, have you been clear with people what your vision is? Number three, how are you gonna behave in order to help achieve that vision? And number four, how are you going to respond to people who behave in ways that are contrary that hurt the vision? That's number one. So they have to establish some sort of foundation to be clear to people where they're trying to go and more importantly, how we're going to behave to get there. However, we can already predict that some people will not behave that way. So let's have that conversation on the front end because we already know it's coming and let's avoid that undercurrent. Number two, Continue to build your capacity. Leadership was never meant to be a committee of one. Continue to build your capacity and continue to grow more leaders. Empowering people is truly delegation, but how we empower people makes the difference. Telling people what to do is not empowering people. Showing people what to do is empowering people. 
So again, we want to show and then we want to observe people. So my point is this, when you build capacity, part of it is setting people up for success. Our job is to set people up for success, teach them how to do something so they can replicate it with the people they work with. So building capacity. Number three, be careful. You think the culture's here, but there is a subculture. Your people know where the undercurrents exist in the organization. They know the undercurrents you're creating. You don't want to create them. You're not trying to create them. They're exhausting. So make sure you allow other people to help you see the culture through their eyes. That means you have to have a process where they get voice. So they help you avoid that. And last but not least, please give yourselves grace. Average exists in every organization. Okay. These aren't perfect systems. These aren't perfect protocols or frameworks. There's always going to be problems. But for every undercurrent you remove, eliminate, or minimize, more time for you and, quite frankly, a healthier version for you. And the last thing I would say is do your very best to stay off the perimeter and we don't get the results you want. You really have to reflect, what did I miss in this process that got me this result? That's what I'd say. Jimmy, um, I know it's it's difficult in a forty five minute conversation to take the, <laughs> the the wisdom and you know some of the protocols and everything you've created you know in a series of texts and providing a conversation like this, but really really helpful. I'm I'm very appreciative of your time. I'm oh, so thankful you. that you were able to be here with me face yeah, to face. Right? Awesome. This is yeah. fun and easy, and we could probably go this on legit. for hours. This is legit. Jeff. Yeah, this yeah. Legit it, stuff. It, it feels <laughs> legit. It's not because of me. <laughs> So once again, I really, really appreciate you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. God bless. The same. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, educators, see, I, I, I promise, um, I really feel like our leader chat, specifically this one with Jimmy Casas, delivers and has nothing to do with, um, you know, whether we're legitimate or not. It just has to do with, we just invite really, really good leaders with incredible wisdom and experience that we do our best to kind of boil down to some words of wisdom we can bring your way. And so this is a great example of that. We are so thankful Jimmy was able to be with us. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, be well.